We have a special treat for us this morning. Dr. Sun Chun Ra is going to submit himself, subject himself to an interview. And uh, he's going to let me interview him. He doesn't know what I'm going to ask him. uh, But we're talking about his book, The Next Evangelicalism. And uh, he's going to come uh, for the first few minutes and give us kind of an opening, a summary of uh, his thought and the book itself. And then I'm going to follow up with some questions. We also will have an opportunity uh, for you to ask questions if you have good ones. Um, And uh, now I don't get to decide, but a couple of people will look at your questions and they will toss out the bad ones. Uh, No, what that means is if we've already asked it or if he has talked about it in in, in depth, uh, we may or may not get to that one. So we'll select questions. Um, they're, They're cue cards or index cards in the back. And so if you want to raise a question later on uh, as we get to that part. Go toward the back near the the front of house table and find a card and a pencil. Okay, those instructions pretty clear for you. Uh, We're really blessed to have Dr. Ra here. And I want you, like you welcomed our pastor, to welcome our special guest, Dr. Ra, as he comes. Um, just a way of introduction about myself and the book as well. I teach at North Park Theological Seminary, starting my fourth year of teaching now. Before that, I was a pastor of a church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, called Cambridge Community Fellowship Church. Uh, we started that church in 1996, uh, intentionally wanting to be a multi-ethnic, urban, uh, social justice-oriented church. Uh, back then, there weren't that many churches like us, but now there are a lot more churches that are focused on these issues of racial reconciliation, justice, and urban ministry. Uh, but God called me out here for whatever reason uh, about three years ago to come out here and teach at North Park Seminary, and it's been a real interesting journey for us as a, as a family for, to be here in Chicago and to teach at North Park. Uh, a little bit about the book. If you haven't picked up your copy yet, there, I'll have a few copies available, and I'll be happy to sign those. These are also available on Amazon.com, and you can go there and check those out. Um, you can also follow up if you want to follow up some conversations that are uh, sparking your interest here. Uh, the website is profra.com if you want to hear about some of the things that we're looking at that are coming out of the themes of the book, including some inter- interviews and some uh, insight that we have on some churches that we're looking at it that are exemplifying some aspects of the next evangelicalism. Uh, the book actually comes out of, a, I, I think, a biblical context. It come, came, came out of a series of talks that I've given, and one of those uh, passages that we looked at was in Acts chapter 15. And Acts 15 is a really interesting story. It's a pivotal point in the church's history. Uh, What was happening in Acts 15, which is actually the description of something called the Jerusalem Council, was that the church was shifting from a majority and overwhelmingly Jewish cultural church to a much more diverse church community. And Acts 15 talks about the Jerusalem Council, which was convened to talk about this major issue that had come up in the church, the shift away from a Jewish-dominated faith to a much more multicultural, to a much more Gentile-oriented faith. So what you have in that story is how did the church deal with this major, major shift in the demographics of the church? Now, I draw the parallel that what you see in Acts chapter 15 is what you're seeing. The book of Acts is actually being replayed here in the 21st century. In that, we went from a Western culture, European, North American, white-centered Christianity and the dramatic shift to a much more multicultural, international, global Christianity. Some of these facts are no longer in dispute, that in the year 1900, 80% of the Christians in the world 
were white Christians. They were found in Europe and North America. So only about 100 years ago, 80% of the Christians in the world were found in Europe and North America. Right now, or in 2005, six, over 60%, 61% of the Christians in the world are actually found in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Uh, so that means that 40% of the Christians are, or about 40% of the Christians are in North America and Europe, and a huge percentage of those Christians are actually Asian, African, and Latin American. The projection is that by the year 2050, 80% of the Christians in the world will be non-white. So if we're looking at the year 1900, 80% of the Christians are white. The year 2050, 80% of the Christians are African, Asian, Latin American, non-Anglo heritage. We're talking about within 150 years, we have completely reversed the trends of global Christian history for the last thousand plus years. Within 150 years, we're smack dab in the middle of that major transition. Uh, now, this, again, this book, this kind of stuff has been very well documented. Uh, probably the, 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 ma- the major work that's done a good job on this is The Next Christendom by Philip Jenkins. But there are a number of other works, works that have documented this tremendous shift from a European North American-centric Christianity to an African, Asian, Latin American-centric Christianity. What I argue in The Next Evangelicalism is that that shift is not only occurring globally, it is also occurring locally. And that what we're seeing is a shift away from an Anglo-centered Christianity in Europe and particularly in North America and particularly in the United States as well. Right around the time the book came out in the uh, in late spring, there were two major uh, news articles about the decline of Christianity. One was in the Christian Science Monitor authored by a blogger by the name of the Internet Monk. And he had written this article called The Collapse of Evangelicalism. A few days after that came out a Newsweek article, front page of Newsweek. The author was John Meacham, and he wrote an article called The Death of Christianity or The Decline of Christianity in America. What both of these authors were noting was that the evangelical Christian influence and presence in American society seemed to be waning, seemed to be declining. People were pointing to the elections, people were pointing to the political process, just the influence of Christianity seemed to be declining. There were a number of polls conducted in the past year that said that the group that identified themselves as spiritual but not religious, meaning they liked spiritual faith but didn't go to any church, that number had increased in the last 10 years from 8% of the, world, uh, of the U.S. population to 16% of the uh, U.S. population. So we're talking about the perception that Christianity is in very sharp decline in the United States. My argument is that if you were to go to a church like this, or if you were to visit some of the newer churches that have sprung up in the last 10, 15 years, what you'll notice is not the death of Christianity, but the revival of Christianity. But the revival of Christianity is not happening in the traditional white churches that were flourishing 100 years ago. The revival of Christianity is happening in the African-American churches, in the Spanish storefront churches, in the Korean immigrant churches, and in the blooming multi-ethnic churches that are starting up in large numbers in the last 5, 10 years. So what they've done is they have focused on white evangelicals to measure how is Christianity doing in the United States. And they have neglected that Asian churches, African-American churches, Latino churches, multi-ethnic churches are flourishing and growing by leaps and bounds. I have some numbers in the book that I talk about, especially as related to my research in the city of Boston. But what we're seeing is that the Christianity in the United States is shifting away from a Anglo-European heritage Christianity to a much, much more multi-ethnic Christianity. I shift then from the book to talk about 
now that's the exciting future that's ahead of us. Is that an exciting future? Is that an exciting future for the church? It is, because that's what's going to save the church in America. The American church is not in decline, unless you're looking at old traditional white churches. Those are in pretty sharp decline. But if you're looking at a younger generation of a multi-ethnic, cross-cultural church, those churches are booming and blossoming and springing up all over the place. The second part of the book, or the second uh, point that I make in this, is that despite these changes that are occurring, we still have a Western Eurocentric Christian theology, ecclesiology approaches to ministry that will hinder the church from embracing the next evangelicalism. That's why the subtitle of the book is called Releasing the Church from Western Cultural Captivity. What I argue is that the American church is so captured to an approach to church that is biased towards Western, white, European heritage Christianity that we are unable to see this multi-ethnic Christianity that, that is ahead of us. I, I, I want to thank you for writing this because, um, and you'll hear this kind of in my first question, um, I think you're, you're pointing us to some things that, one, we don't pay attention to um, as Christians, um, and you're doing it in a way that is, um, that is uh, careful and intelligent, and, um, and I appreciate you for that. And I think, I think you'll hear kind of this in my first question. And I ask this because labels, for me personally, don't always fit. And so it's helpful for me to sort of ask, well, what do we mean by this? And, and that first question is, can you talk about what it means to, what, what evangelicalism is? Can you define that for us? Um, primarily because the people and the groups and the communities that you go into uh, in the second half of the book often don't fit in to somebody's definition of evangelical or evangelicalism. So can you just kind of highlight the, the major thrust of what it means to be evangelical or what you mean by evangelicalism? Uh, your question is what's gotten me into trouble in a, in a in more recent context. And that's the failure to distinguish. And I, I didn't do this because I, didn't, I, I wasn't sure that I needed to do this, but I'm realizing this is a, a, ma- a major confusion uh, among most people who've read the book or in, in Christian circles. The distinction between a political evangelicalism versus a spiritual Christian evangelicalism. The political evangelicalism is the religious right. And so in the secular media, when you use the word evangelicals, nine times out of ten, they're actually talking about the religious right. They're talking about those who hold particular political views and who line up, by and large, with the Republican Party. So there is this massive confusion when you use the word evangelical in most secular circles, or even in Christian circles, the assumption, not a theological assumption, but a whole lot of political social assumptions. Uh, And that's usually meant Republican. That's also actually meant white. Uh, So that term in secular media has come to have that connotation. I try to use the word evangelical. Uh, Some of the questions that have been asked about me is, is evangelicalism worth redeeming? Well, the political evangelicalism, I'm not, I don't know. I don't, don't, I'm not necessarily sure I want to redeem that part of evangelicalism. But the spiritual evangelicalism, the faith of evangelicalism, I think there is something worth redeeming there. Um, The way I would define it is that evangelicalism, in the best sense of the word, are those who take the scriptures seriously. Those who believe that Jesus is the answer to the problems not only of our individual lives, but of the world. That scripture teaches us how we might find salvation through Christ. Um, It calls us into a community. It calls us into a life together. 
it, uh, it points us towards a kingdom value and a kingdom life. Um, that would be my kind of take on it. But the unfortunate part is that the phrase evangelicalism has taken on a very strongly political social connotation that I wouldn't necessarily buy into that definition. And you're not talking about that part no, of evangelicalism. No, no. I'm talking much more about evangelicalism as those who have a personal relationship with Christ, who are committed to the values of the kingdom of God, who are seeking to live out their faith through scriptures in the world. I would, I would say that's the best of what evangelicalism could be. So now, what, what I see you doing in the book is, is in, in, at least in part, raising both uh, praise and congratulation to what it means to be evangelical um, and, and white evangelical, and at the same time offering criticism and critique. And I, and I wonder if you can sort of ground um, the next few minutes, and we probably have about 10, 15 before we hear other questions. Can you ground, maybe in your own personal narrative, the gifts of evangelicalism. Sure. Uh, and you talk about that in the book. You go into your story. So can you kind of highlight uh, what are the gifts that maybe you've received and, and, and the gifts of evangelicalism? That's a great question. Um, just a few kind of background commentary on this. Um, this, you know, when you, do, when you write a book, you go through multiple iterations and you go through multiple drafts and you have many people read the copies and, and the rough drafts. Uh, and a lot of things get changed along the way for the better. Um, the original title that I had submitted to InnoVarsity Press was uh, The White Captivity of the Church. Uh, and I also submitted that title to Zondervan. Uh, Zondervan pretty much right off the pass, yeah, we really can't publish that book. It's not going to go over well with our marketing people. Um, InnoVarsity said, all right, we'll take a look at it. They agreed to the contract, but then halfway through they said, you know, we're not really going to be able to sell this book unless we change the title to Next Evangelicalism. Went to my wife and said, what do you think? She said, look, you've been working two years on this book. At least sell a few copies. So let's change it to a more user-friendly title. So that was kind of the final vote on this. Uh, and also during the first draft, um, I, when I shifted from being a pastor to a, to a professor, I realized one of the major shifts that I took was um, I do a lot of deconstructing these days. And... Um, I don't know what happened when I, when I drove out here from Boston to Chicago, but some kind of pastoral bone in my body might have been removed in some form. I don't know, some, some alien came and abducted the pastoral bone in my body, and it just, I, I just became a lot more critical. I became a lot more about deconstruction. And so the first draft of the book reflected that quite a bit. There was 99.999% criticism and deconstruction, and maybe 0.001% encouragement. Uh, the book went through multiple reviews, had a lot of different people look at it, and that was the main feedback that came back that said, you are doing a great job of deconstructing American evangelicalism, but how are you going to encourage others pastorally? And so I went and tried to find my pastoral cloak of some kind and, and try to put it myself in the lens of, well, how would I speak this as a pastor rather than just as a professor or as a, crit a critic of society? Uh, so what happened in, the, in that part is when I, that's when I incorporated a lot more of my personal story. Uh, and I talk a lot, of my, and, and, and some people that have read it have said, you talk a little too much about your personal story now. Uh, but one of the things I talk about is that as someone who grew up in an inner city neighborhood in Baltimore, uh, grew up on food stamps uh, my, my, uh, as, a, as, as a product of an immigrant home, my parents were separated, uh, my, my mom was a single mom who barely spoke English, trying to raise you know, four kids in an inner city Baltimore neighborhood. Um, it was the church that really was my salvation. You know, I mean, it, it, was the, it was the church that provided support. It was the church that prevented me from going down a path that I easy, very easily could have gone down in the neighborhood that I was in. Uh, it was the church that gave me a sense of worth 
that I didn't get from my earthly father. It was the church that actually provided my mom as a single mom in a foreign country the spiritual support that she needed to make it through the day, to be able to say, I've raised four kids and they're doing well because it was the church, uh, it was Christ in the church that helped her walk through that process. So that debt that I have to the church is, is, is unbelievable. And I think a lot of that is Western evangelicalism that really blessed me as an individual. Um, even coming, for me coming out of a Korean uh, cultural context, this idea of your identity is really tied in with your family's identity. But it was Western evangelicalism that taught me about individuation, that I didn't have to be what my earthly father was. Uh, he was, you know, he had all sorts of things that I didn't want to become. But in certain cultures, you're not. You have to be, or, or you know, there's kind of this thing you inherit from your family. Uh, but Western individuation says, no, you can be different from that. There is a hope that you have that goes beyond where you're coming from. Um, it moves you beyond the shame of the family of origin. It moves you towards a new identity that as an individual that you can claim as a person made in the image of God. And these are all values and expressions of faith that I learned from the Western white church that I am absolutely indebted to. So one of the mistakes that I think have come in reading uh, folks that have read the book is, well, you're just critiquing the white church and throwing, absolutely not. I absolutely believe that the Western white church has done an invaluable, absolutely beautiful thing into things that have been contributed. All I'm asking for is hear these other voices. Hear the voice of the Asian American Christians. Hear the voice of the black church. Hear the voice of the Spanish-speaking uh, uh, storefront churches because these churches have so much to offer. And if you have this white Western theology at the center and everything else is at the margins, you are excluding the voices that need to be heard in the next evangelicalism. Uh, so, so talk a little bit about those voices. So you've got the African-American church, the black church. You've, you've got Native American um, ministry in the book. You certainly have the immigrant church, primarily the Korean church, and Spanish-speaking, the Latino church. Can, can you, and this may kind of be a stretch, um, which is fine, but I want to I give you some time to talk about those voices because you give them room in the book. They seem to be uh, very important. So can you talk maybe one at a time about the reasons why you chose those voices and what those voices, um, sh what we should hear those voices telling us, what we should gather from them? I think some of it for, for many of us is the commitment to try to learn from other cultures. And I think that's a biblical call because what you see in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 is that is going to be a reality. Whether you like it or not, when we get to heaven, we're going to have to learn to live with those that are different from us. So we might as well start now. now oh, we might wait, as well express the now. Did we know that? <laughs> I'm preaching to the choir here. No, I'm saying I, I might want to, you know. Are you sure? Well, this church knows it. <laughs> I, mean, I think this church knows it. I think so, so I have to deal with Pastor Peter okay, then, in, the <laughs> eyes, in the eschatons. Oh! <laughs> You were saying... That was, that was an apocryphal statement, I think. <laughs> uh, when, oh, I was, uh, when I was at a camp, uh, this was when I was on staff with a uh, university, um, I went to this camp, of, uh, and it was mostly kind of white students from the Boston area. Um, I ran into this guy, he had his little name tag, and the name of the name tag was Adam Clayton Powell IV. 
And I was, wow, Adam Clayton Powell IV. Then I'm kind of like, are you the Adam Clayton Powell IV? And he's like, yeah, I'm, yeah, my grandfather was Adam Clayton Powell Jr., the first African-American congressman from, uh, from New York City, the pastor of Abyssinian Baptist Church. Major, major historical figure. I'm like, I'm like asking him questions. What was your grandfather like? What was your grandmother like? And I'm going on and on and, and asking him all these questions about Adam Clayton Powell. Uh, then he turns to me and he says, you know, uh, I've been in this campus ministry and this, in this, uh, this group for uh, about three years now. And in the three years that I've been here, nobody has recognized my name. Nobody has recognized my name. I'm thinking, this is one of the most significant fe- uh, figures, not just in African-American history, but just American history. This is one of the most important names in American history. And these 200 students who have been in fellowship with him for three years didn't recognize his name once in three years. Now, that means that most white evangelicals don't have to learn the stories of those outside of your own communities. Because it's not taught in your schools. It's actually not taught in many of the Christian colleges. Sometimes it's not even taught in seminary. These are the stories that you can ignore. So part of what I want to do in this book is to present some of these stories. To say, let's learn from the African American church. Let's learn from the native communities. Um, and I'll just use one example, because there's a lot more in that you can get in the book. Uh, but I, I, I do in the, uh, in the first section on this uh, a, a story about the Native American community. Um, about, uh, it's been about nine years now. About nine years ago, um, I began to uh, begin my inquiry into Native American theology and, and Native American culture. Uh, and I began to begin to develop some friendships uh, with some key Native pastors, uh, uh, some of whom were involved with Urbana. And the year that I was involved with Urbana, I got to know some of them. Uh, Ray Aldred, who is now a theologian at uh, Canadian Theological Seminary. Richard Twist, who is a, just one of the most dynamic preachers you're going to ever hear uh, out in the West Coast. Uh, Randy Woodley, uh, who teaches at George Fox Seminary. And Terry LeBlanc, who uh, does a ministry outreach to uh, Native Americans in the Canadian area, in the Canadian area, in the country of Canada. <laughs> Canada is actually a province of the United States, according to some people. Uh, so... Uh, through my relationship with these uh, four and others as well, uh, um, including uh, Jerry Chapman, who worships, uh, does a worship ministry, uh, Jonathan Maracle, who does a, a worship ministry called Broken, uh, Broken Something, <laughs> uh, uh, they, do, they do some amazing contextualized ministry out of the Native American community. And just getting to know these guys, it was just an amazing story, because uh, Richard Twist has this beautiful book, and one of the chapters in his books is called 500 Years of Bad Haircuts. Uh, another example of where that was the original book title, and the publisher changed it to something a little more benign. But what he talks about with 500 years of bad haircuts is that for 500 years, missionaries have come into the native community. And they told us that in order to be Christian, we had to become white. So they took away our native names. They took away our native culture, our hair, our heritage. They wouldn't let us dance. They wouldn't let us wear our regalia. They took away our drums, our music. They stripped away our native culture. And they said, kill the savage, but save the man. That was the mantra. And a lot of the churches were involved in these schools that essentially try to destroy native culture. And so for 500 years, you had these missionary efforts that try to destroy the native culture. And what Richard Twist says is that after 500 years of bad haircuts, you have the highest rate of alcoholism, highest rate of unemployment. You have the, uh, a, a minuscule percentage of those who are Christian, and those that are Christian wear the shirt and ties and have to feel like they have to worship in a particular form that is predominantly uh, like white Western forms of, of faith. So what Richard and Terry and, and Randy and Ray have done is try to recover native forms of worship. 
And uh, the, the stuff they do is absolutely amazing. Uh, just this couple of weeks ago, um, uh, we went to the Anawam Center right here in Uptown, right up here in up, up, t- Uptown Chicago, where we worship in the, in the tradition of the Native community uh, with uh, 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 the, uh, the, the liturgy that comes out of a traditional Native worship. And it was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. Uh, and some have accused them of saying, well, you're syncretists. You're blending your Native religion with Christian faith. You mean like the same way you do with Christmas, where we take all these Druid forms of faith and then we call them Christian forms, right? Like the Christmas tree that every Christian has in their home, which is actually a, about as pagan as you can get, to put a Christian Christmas tree or a holly leaf. Those are Druid worship forms that goes back to pagan, barbaric England. I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Great Britain. Uh, and yet here we are in Christmas celebrating these things. That's like the worst form of syncretism. But now we can say in the Native community, there are these worship forms that incorporates native worship, that incorporates native expressions of spirituality that we absolutely can learn from and maybe should and must learn from because our forms of faith are just as culturally captive, maybe even more so than we realize. Um, if, if you have questions, go get cards, and they're supposed to take them to Pastor David, right? So Pastor David's going to stand by the table and go get cards and write your questions um, over, over this one. So I might have one or two more questions, depending... So one of, one of my friends uh, of the text, Michael Eric Dyson, says something in a talk. He says that the United States of America is more like the United States of amnesia. Mm. And um, he talks about how we forget very easily, that we dispense with history. And I, I want you to tell us why we should. Tell us why these stories, these voices from the immigrant church or these voices from the Native American community, why do they matter? I mean, there's a 35-year-old in the church today who, who, you're right, hasn't heard this history, doesn't know about the sociology and the racism and the, all, these types of things and how white cultural captivity has uh, affected him or her. And I, I wonder if you can tell us why these voices we should hear. Sure. sure. Um, there are some great uh, missiologists who've reflected on this very question. Um, and uh, one of the best examples comes from Andrew Walls, and I'm going to... Co- I'm going to twist it to a more contemporary. He looks, uses the, the theater as an example. I'm going to use it in the, in, uh, the uh, more applicable for us, is, which is baseball. Uh, when I lived in Boston, I was a pastor in Boston, there is a great program called the Clergy Pass Program. And if you were a clergyman in, uh, a clergy person in the city of Boston, you can write to the Red Sox, and they would send you a, a free pass to all the Red Sox games, except for the Yankee series and opening day and, world, and playoff games. So every year I would ride away for this pass, and then they would let you into the games. Now, now you didn't have an assigned seat, and Fenway Park is sold out all the time. So you have to kind of move around looking for empty seats, or most of the time you just kind of stand in, in whatever place you can find. It's uh, standing room only. Um, so I go there, and I would sit all, and, and move around all throughout the stadium, seeing every part of the stadium. By the way, a side note, when I came to Chicago, I wrote to the Cubs and said, do you have a clergy pass program? Uh, now, you know that the three years... And they said, I, clergy? <laughs> <laughs> well, for the Red Sox, the three years that I had the pass, the I Sox. prayed for them every time I went to the stadium. And how many World Series did we win those years? All right, so... <laughs> and I wrote to the Cubs, and I said, do you have a clergy pass program? They said, no, we do not have such a program. How many years have they lost? 101 and counting? They need a whole they lot more They need a prayer. clergy pass program right away. I'm willing to fast and pray for them, but they're not going to give me free camp passes. I'm not going to pray for them. <laughs> Before we start a riot. Um... <laughs> anyway, 
You go to the stadium, you sit at different parts. I sit behind home plate. I, I hear the pop of the mitt of the catcher's glove. Right? You hear it. You see the balls and strikes much clearly. You can see the action right at home plate. But I can't see the fly balls to the outfield because I'm, the, the, uh, the overhead is an obstructed view. I can't see what's going on in the bullpen. So I have a limited view of what's going on behind, that I'm sitting behind home plate. So I move down to third baseline, and I can see even the dugout chatter. And I can see the third baseman and the pitcher interacting. So I move out to the right field bleachers. And now I have clear shot of all the fly balls. But I can't see the ground balls in the infield as clearly. I certainly can't hear and see the balls and strikes as clearly. So what you have is, you have the same game going on in the field at the same time. Everybody is watching the same game. But depending on where you are in the stadium, you're going to get a slightly different angle, and you're going to see things at a different perspective, even though it's the exact same game. The problem is, when one person standing behind third base, or at the third base line says, this is the only way to watch a game. All the angles on the game are irrelevant, inconsequentials, and have nothing to say about what's going on on the field. Meanwhile, you're missing half the action because you have only one seat in the game. What you need to do is, like when you go, when you watch uh, baseball on TV, you need 18 different camera angles. Not just one camera angle, an overhead light. That, that, that wouldn't be a good game to watch. You need 18 different camera angles. Or after the game, you talk to someone sitting in right field, hey, on that fly ball, I didn't quite catch it. What happened on that play? Because you're need, you need the different angles in order to get a fuller picture of what's going on. Again, get, don't get me wrong, the story on the field is exactly the same. The gospel message has not changed one bit. It is the same gospel yesterday, today, and tomorrow. But where you sit in the stadium determines your view on that game. So you have an incomplete understanding of the game, of the story, of the gospel message, if all you hear is one angle. And it is the ultimate arrogance to say that this angle is the defining, definitive angle. All other angles are inconsequential, unimportant. That's to say, you know what, this is, my position is the only position to be in. Without realizing, God is working and, 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 and you can see God at work from all these different angles and it enriches you, it strengthens you, it deepens your faith, it deepens your understanding of who God is. And, and talk about that gospel, how the gospel is the engine for that. So, so it sounds like the gospel motivates, but how does the gospel drive that activity? How does the gospel enable us to to hear those stories, to move around, to see those different angles. Um. Yeah, well, for one thing, I mean, you know, let's, let's, take this, let's stretch this illustration as far as we can take it. Um, the, 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 the story of the field is so fascinating. It's so life-changing. And as Pastor Peter was talking about earlier, it is what, what brings us together, right? We're not just after a, a set of creeds. We're not just after a, a vision statement. There's something about what Jesus did there's something about the person of Jesus. There's something about the work of Jesus and the love of Jesus that we are in, in, uh, fascinated by it. We're engrossed by it. And if, if that's what I want to know more about, then absolutely I need to know more about from another angle, from another perspective. Uh, let me give another illustration on this in that um, the difference between seeing the gospel through the lens of celebration and the lens of suffering. If you are in a place of celebration like most of us are, and most of us are living in affluence, relative comfort, and places where we have most of the things that we need, we're going to look at the gospel in a way that is tainted or reflects where we're coming from culturally. 
let me use this quick illustration. Let's say that you were to go to a North, Northern, North Shore suburb church and ask a 16-year-old girl, what is the gospel message to you? And she would say something like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let me backtrack. You would ask a 16-year-old girl in the northern suburbs, what is heaven like? That 16-year-old girl would probably say heaven is more like what she has on earth. Why? Because she already has good things on earth. So if you're living in a comfortable suburb, you've got a six-bedroom house and a you know, BMW in your garage, well, what do you want in heaven? Well, actually, I would like the same thing. Just a little more of it, please, God. So you ask a 16-year-old girl, what is heaven like in, in Northbrook of, of Illinois? She'll say, oh, heaven's going to be great. Because when I get to heaven, I won't be stuck in this tiny little Japanese car. The Toyota Yaris is just too small for me. And when I get to heaven, I will get a German or Italian engineer car, a Ferrari, a Jaguar, a BMW. I know Jaguars are not Italian engineer, but a, a Ferrari, a Jaguar, a Mercedes. Because in heaven, you get good things. And it will be just more of what I have. And so what about other things? Well, in, on earth, I had this dinky little 19-inch television set. You know, it doesn't get good reception. You know, it doesn't get high def. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting 65-inch plasma, high def with satellite hookup. Well, on earth, I've got this little Dell desktop, you know, small screen. I, it's a slow internet service. But when I get to heaven, I'm getting a Mac Airbook. Because for that 16-year-old girl, heaven is what she has on earth because she already has good things. She's just going to get a lot more of it. Now, let's ask that same question and go to Darfur, Sudan, and ask a 16-year-old girl in Darfur, Sudan. What do you think her answers are going to be? What's heaven like? Heaven is nothing like earth. It is nothing like what I'm experiencing right now. Heaven is a place where I actually have food to eat. Heaven is a place where there is water. Heaven is a place where I don't have to worry about getting raped. Heaven is a place where my parents have not been killed by the Janjaweed. Heaven is a place that is nothing like earth. Why? Because earth is a place of suffering for her. Now, are they wrong? Are they right? Actually, they're both right. They both have a little picture of heaven. And in order to get the complete picture of heaven, we need to hear both of their stories. If you just live in a, a Northbrook suburb and that's your only view of heaven, your understanding of the gospel is incomplete. And so you need to hear the story out of the places of suffering in order to make that gospel more complete. Catch your breath. I'll get questions. All right. What I'm going to do is go ahead and read all four, okay, okay. that I think would be pertinent, and then have you spend the next 10 minutes or so just kind of answering them as you see fit, okay? First question um, is, you said that churches need to learn the stories and traditions of the various ethnicities that comprise the church. But most churches have a Sunday morning, one and a half hour to two hour format with half an hour going to praise and worship. So how do we learn these stories as a church community? And it's written by a person who says, I'm black. Second question, we've talked before about the uh, homogeneity principle and how it is tough to do multiculturalism and do it right. But with the decline of traditional white churches in America, uh, is, is America seeing a shift where multiculturalism ex is actually easier or at least faster growing? And why? Here's a third question. You spoke of how ministry is predominantly influenced by Western Eurocentric theology. What ideas and concepts in non-Western theologies can inform our urban ministries? 
And the person says, particularly curious about what you think of liberation theology. Here's another question, uh, last one, so these four. What role does the church have and what role do parachurch entities have in breaking through the barriers? And I picked this one because it was submitted by a 59-year-old Caucasian. Okay. All right. Uh, let me start with that first question about what can, and this comes up a lot, what can we do? Um, and I would echo what Pastor Peter said a little bit earlier which is if you think an uh, hour and a half, two, two and a half, depending on how long a service goes, that that service is going to um, feed you spiritually, uh, charge you up for the week, challenge you, uh, it's, it's you're, you're, you're demanding too much. Uh, you've shifted into consumerism. You have a laundry list of things you need the church to provide for you in that two-hour time period, and you come and you want to check those things off. So... Um, I would, I would challenge to say that if, it's, if you think that's only going to happen in the context of the hour and a half, two hours that you have as a community on Sunday, then you have probably missed this idea altogether. Um, what I would challenge is that, and this is more my personal journey, where I have grown the most in my cross-cultural understanding has really been about relationships. It has really been about relationships. Uh, just to sit and hang out with Ray Aldred, uh, just to sit and hang out with Richard Twist. Um, you know, I've heard them speak. I've heard their, their sermons. I've heard them, you know, the, the worship they've led. But it's just being in relationship with them, uh, having dinner with them at our house, having them stay over, having them, you know, just getting the chance to interact. Those are the places that I have been really blessed and where I've grown in my understanding of cross-cultural ministry. Uh, the other example on this is uh, 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 my wife and I have been married now for 13 years. Uh, wonderful 13 years. We have two wonderful children. Uh, but I would tell you this, our first year and a half of marriage was brutal. Absolutely brutal. I'll tell you why. First of all, I planted a church in our first year of marriage. If there are any semi- I know there are a number of seminary. Don't you dare plant a church in your first year of marriage. I will come and hunt you down and forbid you from doing so because it is the most ridiculous thing in the world to try to plant a church in your first year of marriage. Well, my wife and I tried to do that. And it was, it was brutal on our marriage. It was, we had some really difficult times. First year of marriage is hard enough, but then to try to plan a church, all the spiritual warfare, all the difficulties of that, and we really struggled. And in some sense, we were on our own because we were the pastors of the church. We had a young church. Uh, I think at the time, we were the only married couple in the church in the first year of marriage. So we really felt like there was nobody to turn to. Uh, but then we turned to an African-American couple, um, uh, Ray and Gloria Hammond. Uh, Ray is a very prominent leader in, in the city of Boston, a uh, very key leader in the, in the, uh, among the African-American churches, but also uh, in, in kind of ministry in general. Uh, and just out of desperation, we said, you know what? We need an older couple to mentor us. Mentor, mentor us, too. Uh, we need an older couple to mentor us because we're just at a really difficult stage in our marriage right now. And I was shocked. They said, you know what? We're going to do that. Now, both are full-time medical, or his wife is, Gloria is a full-time medical doctor and a full-time pastor. Ray is a full-time pastor, and also he's the pastor of the city of Boston. He had no time. They had no time. But they were willing to say, you know what? Uh, we want to spend time with you. And we don't remember the sermons that they preached, or uh, they actually dedicated our daughters uh, the, as, uh, during our, our, God, our, our daughter's uh, 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 baby dedication. We don't remember that sermon, but what we do remember are the times that they prayed with us and prayed for us. And so those kind of relational connections are really those places where, and that requires some work on your part. 
That's not a passive. You come into church, all right, show me what you got, and I'll, I'll take, it, and take it back. No, that requires an effort to build those relationships. Uh, if, you're, if you're the egghead type and feel like, you know what, I, I'm not good at relationships, you can stretch yourself in that. But then there are also books. There are also literature. Um, I'm, I'm always saddened when I hear of the books that people are reading, and there's not a single non-male, non-white author in, on that reading list. Um, non-male, non-white author on that reading list. So, you know, I, I go to some of these blogs and what people are reading now, and I say, you know, oh, I got another book by Brian McLaren. Now, Brian's a friend, and I like his stuff, but other authors exist in the world, too, besides Brian McLaren. I mean, he's, and so there are all these people who are re- reading these white male authors and have never learned about Cornell West, Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, uh, Hector Elizondo, uh, Virgilio Elizondo, Hector Elizondo is an actor, Virgilio Elizondo is a theologian. <laughs> Don't mix up when you Google those names. Um, you have these great authors that nobody's ever read in the white evangelical community because we don't talk about these authors. And so that's another way of making that interaction. Uh, let me talk a little about liberation theology since that kind of came up and that's maybe the best segue on this. Um, I look at liberation, well, let, let's put it this way. The way that we teach theology right now is you have theology that is right here in the center, right? Right here in the center. That's what we call theology. We don't put a name in front of it. We just call it theology. So that's Calvin, that's Luther, that's Edwards, that's the Pietists. That's all the European history theology. So when you take a theology course, you can assume you're going to learn Calvin, Luther, and the basic European theology. Then you start giving funny names to theology that's not that central theology. And you call it black theology. James Cone, that's black theology. You call it Minjung theology. That's a Korean theology. You call it feminist theology. That's for women. Then you call it liberation theology, and that's for the oppressed, and that's for Latin America. So what you've said is this is normative because it doesn't need a moniker or an adjective in front of it. It's just good theology. And everything else is on the margins mainly because that theology is only for blacks. It's only for Latin Americans. It's only for Asian Americans. What I would argue for is that actually all of these things need to be integrated into our theology, going back to that baseball stadium illustration. Let me pick up on that with the whole suffering and celebration model. If you look at Western theology, we focus a lot of energy on the crucifixion. Now, don't get me wrong. The crucifixion is an important, critical part of our understanding of Christology. But if you look at the amount of ink that has been spent on trying to understand just the crucifixion, it is, it is an inordinate amount of ink that has been spilled in the West. In America, in, in North America, and in the UK, and in Europe, that is the main debate about propitiation, about the cross, and all of those things. But what you don't realize is that that is only one part of the gospel story. And you don't hear about the theologies that focus on resurrection. Liberation theology is a resurrection theology. And that resurrection theology comes for those who are in places of suffering. The reason why the West is so obsessed with the suffering of Jesus on the cross is because we don't really know suffering. We can't understand suffering because we don't deal with it. And so we need to justify and understand, why would Jesus die on the cross? Why would Jesus suffer? Because that's not something Western culture understands. So we become obsessed with the suffering of Jesus on the cross. In Latin America, in in African nations, in places of suffering, 
look, we know suffering. We know the cross. We live it every day. Give us a story about the resurrection. Give us a story about the victory of Jesus. Therefore, those communities oftentimes will focus on liberation, resurrection, the power of the gospel to raise people from the dead and from uh, places of suffering. Now, is one better than the other? Well, if you have a Western cultural captivity, then you centralize propitiation, crucifixion, and say, that's what the whole gospel is about. And then you ignore all the rest of the stuff that actually is giving us a fuller picture of what the gospel is about. There was one more question in there that I thought would be interesting to to tackle. What was the second question? You spoke of how ministry is predominantly influenced by Western Eurocentric theology. So what ideas and concepts in Western, non-Western theologies can inform our urban ministries? Yeah, the liberation theology is one. Uh, community-based theology versus an individualistic theology. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I say this quite often that um, we look at Scripture through a very Western white lens. And that lens especially is tainted by individualism. So, you know, you look at the Bible, 66 books, two books, three books maybe written to individuals, Titus, Timothy possibly, Philemon, nobody reads. So you've got you know, two or three books written to individuals. So that means the 62 plus other books of the Bible are written to communities. The church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, the people of God. But if you were to sample a typical American evangelical sermon, the overwhelming percentage of those sermons would be about individuals. If you look at the best-selling Christian literature... What are they about? You can be a better you. That you is not plural. That you singular can be a better you. You can have a purpose-driven life. You can say the prayer of Jabez and collect riches. You, the individual, can have all these individual blessings. So the focus of American evangelicalism is on the individual. Now, is that a biblical value? I would say no. Because the Bible talks to communities. How the scripture is to be read in community. Or is this a cultural value of American society? So that's one of the things. How do we read the scripture in community? How do we read it not just for the benefit of me, the individual, so I can go out and have a better life, so I can go out and become prosperous, versus how do these words transform the way I live my life in community and in the world around me? And the African American church has read the the scriptures in those ways. The black church reads it in this context of community. So how can we learn from that community? Um, other communities have, have, have really delved into what does the gospel mean not just for the individual, but for the society, for the people, for the, uh, for the nation. Um, and those are the things that we need to learn from, the, from these different communities as well. Okay. Yeah. So, Jen, as we, as we wrap up, um, just for the next few minutes here, um, you're a pastor, so be pastor for us and our church community. Um, what, would you, what would you say to us? What would you say to us in terms of the book itself, and, and how would this apply to perhaps our church community and us better living out the kingdom together and in this city? Um, I, I said earlier that you know, I, when I shifted from pastor to professor, um, I became really good at deconstructing. And I became less enamored to constructing positively. Um, And that actually is something that I miss terribly about pastoral ministry. Uh, Being a pastor, you actually try to construct something new, something good. And so 
I just, I'm like, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled at what's happening in this church. Um, because you are trying to construct something new. You are trying to construct something that is freed from cultural captivity, that is looking towards a future that God has for American Christianity, but also global Christianity. So my first word would be a word of tremendous encouragement to say what you're doing here is a phenomenal, spectacular, amazing work of God, and you need to persevere through that. Uh, because uh, the more I read and the more I write and, and interact with folks who are interacting with the book, I'm realizing, and you should know, that this is not the norm in American Christianity. What you're doing is abnormal in a very good way, but it is abnormal. And so you need to know that as you are constructing these things, there are going to be unbelievable challenges that come with something that you're trying to construct in a positive way. The way I put it is this. If you are, as a church, are coming together and saying, we are going against the demonic strongholds of racism, classism, sexism, the strongholds of an unfair economic system, the strongholds of, of, of race that have been a, such a part of our nation and culture for so many years, you are declaring war on Satan. You're going to Satan and say, look, we're coming after some of the strongest holds that you have on our nation and our cities. So you better be ready for spiritual warfare. You better be aware that when you make that kind of declaration against Satan, that he's not going to sit by and say, all right, go ahead, take back the city. All right, go ahead, take back the nation. He's not going to allow you to do that. So he will cause division. He will cause discord because that's what he does. That's his job. Well, sort of. So that's what he's out to do. Uh, the encouragement is, do not give up. Persevere through that. Now, it means that you need to raise your game. Here's the thing. If you want to be just another church, just another church that is, that, that does, you know, goes down the checklist, uh, good worship, check, good preaching, check, nice community, check. If you want to be just another church, church, go ahead. Be just another church. But God wants to see churches that are going to be abnormal that are going to step out of that. And my encouragement to you is persevere through that. Don't give up on that. You will have barrier after barrier after barrier. And, you, and most of you know, it will be a lot easier for some of us to go back to our Korean churches, for some of us to go back to our predominantly African-American churches, to go back to our Spanish-speaking communities. It would be a lot easier on one level. But there's something that God is doing. There's something that God is pushing you towards. And I would say persevere, persevere, persevere through that. Um, I, the other part of this is that I understand that this is largely a young congregation. And, and, and having pastored a young congregation as well, um, I want you to know that things will actually get harder before things get easier. Right now, things are easy for you on, on one level. It's cool to be part of a hip congregation. It's cool to be having the first black friend in your life. All right, that's all cool. That's all hip. <laughs> but things get harder. Things are going to get more and more difficult. And again, persevere. Persevere. Because what God is doing is worth the struggle. It's worth the conflict. It's worth the tensions. It's worth the angst that you're going to feel for the next 5, 10, 15 years of your life. So persevere through that.
Sunshine, thank you so very much. Sure. Really appreciate it. Stay up here for a second. I'm excited about what the Holy Spirit has in store for us this fall. I think it's going to be an exciting season of ministry. Um, what I'd like to do right now is if we could all stand, okay? And Sunshine, if you could be your bad prophet, apostolic self, okay? And I want, can you pray for our church? Okay. And church, can we actually hold hands with those that are standing next to us? We, we need prayer desperately. We need prayer for what God is wanting to do. So if you could, as the Holy Spirit leads, just pray for this church community and pray for the various brothers and sisters that are a part of this and lift us up to the Lord. Lord, we first say yes to what you have done and are doing. Yes, God. We say amen yes. to the work that you have accomplished in the midst of your people. Yes. We say praise you for what you have done far beyond what we could have hoped or imagined. Yes. We thank you that you have created a holy space, holy ground, yes. where the Spirit of God dwells and moves in ways that you have ordained. Yes. But we also look towards what you have in store for this church, because the story does not end here. That's right. We thank you that the gospel message is one that propels us forward. That's right. It makes us reflect back, but it also propels us forward. And we thank you that you are calling this church to be propelled forward. Yes. In that process, Lord, do what you need to do in our lives. Yes. We begin with the hard prayer. God, we, we, have, we have places of, of brokenness, yes. of sin, yes. of, of, of just things that we, we, we don't want to bring to you, Lord. Yes. We have places of, of shame, of guilt, places that we don't want to share with others, Lord. But God, we also believe that you are not, not only a God that transforms the world, but you also transforms every individual soul. Yes. And so right. for every individual soul yes. that needs that breaking work, yes, God. I pray for that work yes, to begin God. and to continue. Yes. For every heart that is in need of healing, I pray for that healing to begin. Yes, Lord. For every soul that has been crushed by sin, yes, that has been destroyed by, uh, by patterns of sin, yes. we pray for the restoration of hope yes. and the restoration of a renewed life pursuing after you. Yes. We pray that not only we will be drawn by a cause, but we will be following the yes. person of Christ. So Lord, I pray for every single person that each one of us would commit to not only following the big thing that you have called us to, but faithfulness in the little things yes, as well. Lord. I pray for sanctified and holy marriages in this congregation. Yes, Lord. For families yes, Lord. that are committed to raising yes, their children Lord. in the ways of the Lord. Yes. For husbands and wives to love one another as, as Christ loved the church and as the, and the devotion that is so desperately needed yes, in that Jesus. marriage. Yes. We pray for the marriages that will yes. be a strong part of what this congregation is about. Marriages that honor you. We pray for holiness and purity for those who are single men and women here in this congregation. We pray for the purity of vision 
and the holiness of a pursuit yes, after God. you yes, with a God. heart devoted yes, to those yes, things that, are, that you have called them to. So we pray yes, for the individual God. souls and lives that continue to be transformed yes, here. Jesus. And Lord, I pray for this congregation as a whole, for the witness they will be for this community, for the tough choices that they will need to make. God, I pray against the spirit of consumerism That's right. that, would call, that would call all of us to, to live in these self-absorbed lives and to say, to, to put church as a, a product to be consumed rather than a life to be lived and a, and a cause to be committed to. Yes, Lord, I pray against this yes, consumerism yeah. that we want to be part of something fun yes. and hip, but ultimately we're just trying to satisfy ourselves. Jesus. So we stand against that, Lord, yes. and say we will take yes. up the cross. That's, if that's the most anti-consumeristic thing that the scripture talks about, that we will take up the cross. Yes. We will lay down our lives. Yes. We will not pursue the values of this world. We will not seek after the things that give glory to ourselves, but we will lay down the cross mm-hmm. and follow after you. Mm-hmm. We'll put down, pick up the cross, lay down our lives and follow after you, Lord. Mm-hmm. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us to this kind of commitment. Lord, I stand against passiveness and apathy. Mm-hmm. An apathy that says, all right, we made it this far. Do we have to go any further? Do we have to talk about this again? I stand against apathy because that's, that's one of those things that will seep into a culture of a church oh, and Jesus. cause us to lay down oh, and just, just, just coast the rest of the way. Oh, stand against an apathy, but instead I call oh, upon your wisdom and your calling to become so manifest that there is nowhere to yes, turn Lord. except follow hard after yes, you. Lord. Yes, Lord. Lord, I stand against pride yeah. and a pride that comes when we think we're doing Jesus. the good work. And Lord, again, I acknowledge you are doing a good work. Jesus. But God, it is you that is doing this work. Yes, sir. It is your spirit that is moving among That's this right. congregation. That's right. It is the work of the Holy That's Spirit right. that is igniting right. a passion among your people here. That's right. It is not by human hands. For anything right. built by human hands will be burned and fallen and collapsed. But it is by the work of the Lord. That's right. So I stand against any pride that says, well, look at the good work that we've done. Look at all the things that we're doing as a church. But instead I pray for the dying of that pride. A humility that comes that says, God, it is you and you alone. Yes. It is your spirit and your spirit alone that does this work. I stand against the pride that says, I've got all the answers. I know all the questions. I know what it takes to make this work. I can go to another church and tell them what they're doing wrong. But instead, the humility that comes only by the grace of God do I stand here. Only by the mercies of our Lord are we able to do anything. So I thank you, Lord, for what you are, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you are going to do. Yes, God. Thanks be to God for the work of the Spirit that continues in this place. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Sung-chan, thank you again. Great to see all of you guys here as we go on this journey for the fall. I'm excited about the spirit we'll do. Have a great week. See you back here next Sunday. See you back here next Sunday. Take care.